Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. story that maps onto reality and that's why the central narrative is falling apart right now in the united states people should not be walking around with masks must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is we are americans while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election the founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job i tell you what we are in a truth emergency right now this is the end game It's Thursday, July 21st, 2022, the 547th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. If you are listening to this podcast on the day of its release, thank you, because that means that you are a paid subscriber on the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. That is the only way to hear the podcast on the day of its release. Otherwise, you will find yourself waiting two days to hear the episode. So if you are able and if you want to support me and the work I do and this show, go to I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can sign up for a paid subscription for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. Either way, it breaks down to under one shiny quarter per episode. And you'll get all of the writing immediately when I release it, even if it's behind a paywall for everyone else. If you are already supporting, truly, thank you. So let's get into it. Joe Biden has come down with a case of the coronavirus, or at least more accurately, it has been announced that Joe Biden has tested positive for coronavirus. Now that may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it's not because we know the tests don't really work. 
We know the coronavirus isn't very deadly. And we know that politicians at this point regularly use reports of positive COVID tests in order to avoid having to engage the public for a day or two days or a week or whatever. We see it happen over and over and over again. Gavin Newsom gets COVID again like every other week. But let's take it at face value. Joe Biden has COVID. Now, as I said, COVID is not a particularly dangerous virus for virtually anyone unless you are of advanced age and have other health concerns. Joe Biden is certainly of advanced age and almost definitely has significant other health concerns. He seems to be dealing with dementia or something. So that would be one. I'm not sure that that is a complicating factor for the coronavirus, but his health is clearly deteriorating. Yesterday, he announced during a speech in Massachusetts about the climate emergency that he had cancer. And so did everyone he grew up with, apparently, because of some sort of oil slick phenomenon that existed in Delaware when Joe was young. The oil slicks would attach themselves to people's windshields and they would have to use their windshield wipers to get the oil slicks off. And that's why Joe and everyone else he knows has cancer. And of course, the White House came out and clarified that Joe was simply referring to a bout with melanoma that he had prior to becoming president and that he does not, in fact, have cancer now. So it was just Joe misspeaking as always. And hey, maybe it's true. If I was to guess, I would guess that Joe Biden does not have cancer right now. Although if he did have cancer right now, they certainly wouldn't be telling us about it. And it's possible that the demented old pervert who's pretending to be president right now might tell us all by accident. It is possible. But for now, we might as well assume he does not have cancer and just continue moving forward. But according to the White House, Joe Biden really did test positive for COVID. So let's take that at face value as well. Here's the statement from Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. This morning, President Biden tested positive for COVID-19. He is fully vaccinated and twice boosted and experiencing very mild symptoms. He has begun taking Paxlovid. That's the Pfizer medication that everybody's pretending is sort of like ivermectin, but isn't. It also doesn't work. Consistent with CDC guidelines, he will isolate at the White House and will continue to carry out all of his duties fully during that time. He has been in contact with members of the White House staff by phone this morning and will participate in his planned meetings at the White House this morning via phone and Zoom from the residents. Consistent with White House protocol for positive COVID cases, which goes above and beyond CDC guidance, he will continue to work in isolation until he tests negative. Once he tests negative, he will return to in-person work. Out of an abundance of transparency, the White House will provide a daily update on the president's status as he continues to carry out the full duties of the office while in isolation. Per standard protocol for any positive case at the White House, the White House Medical Unit 
will inform all close contacts of the president during the day today, including any members of Congress and any members of the press who interacted with the president during yesterday's travel. The president's last previous test for COVID was Tuesday when he had a negative test result. And so the White House is saying Joe's just fine. He's just dealing with a little bout of the COVID. Dr. Jill came out today and said that Joe was just fine. She herself has tested negative. She's going to continue forward with her duties and they expect everything to be fine. Maybe it will be fine. It probably will be fine because COVID's not particularly deadly. And Joe Biden ostensibly has among the best health care in the world that anyone could ever imagine. But nonetheless, people have begun to immediately discuss scenarios where Joe Biden would be removed from office, either from health complications or via the 25th Amendment. And those scenarios are entirely possible. I don't want to discount from the possibility of those scenarios, but we may be jumping the gun a little bit here. I think it's also worth noting that even within the evil twin faction, even in that top level of the global communist order as it exists in the United States, there are still factions there. And what Joe Biden wants and the people around him want might not be the same thing as what the people around Kamala Harris want or the people around Hillary Clinton want or the people around Barack Obama want or the people around Gavin Newsom want. So there are a lot of different scenarios at work, and I'm not inclined to pick any of them and think, oh, that's what's going to happen. But it is worth noting that the media, the mainstream media began last night to suggest that it's possible that in the near term, sometime coming very soon, if not days, then weeks, it's possible that there will be an indictment handed down in Delaware for Hunter Biden. And that seems pretty obviously to be the mainstream media doing what they always do, which is to preset narratives, to present a framing for the public for something they know is coming soon, but they don't want to actually tell the public what they know. They want to give people a reason to feel like they already understand the situation in full. And then when this story subsides for a little bit, they'll be like, oh, yeah, he's not really going to get indicted. Now, as one might imagine, Joe Biden does not want to face any questions about what's going on with a potential indictment of his son, particularly because his son is guilty of crimes that go much further than hiring hookers and doing crack and falsifying applications for firearms and then allowing your brother's ex-wife, who you're currently in a sexual relationship with, with and not only with just her, but also her sister, allowing that person, Hallie Biden, access to that firearm, which she then takes and throws in a dumpster across from a school. When she went back for the gun, it was not there. And there is at least ample circumstantial evidence to believe that the Secret Service came in and handled this problem for Hunter Biden. But we'll see about that. Hunter's crimes go well beyond that. What is on the Hunter Biden laptop proves conclusively that Hunter Biden was conducting business around the world on behalf of Joe Biden. He was representing his father when he was 
vice president under Barack Obama and continued to do that well past that point and probably to some degree still does it now. The Biden family has been selling Joe Biden's political office to the highest bidder for almost 50 years now. And so it's easy for Joe Biden and for the Biden campaign and the people around him and the media to try to distract from Hunter's various predilections and personal issues and pretend that stuff doesn't reflect on the fake president. But it's not as easy to do that when you begin talking about selling the fake president's political power to our foreign adversaries. That's a bit harder to cover up. So if you're the people around Joe Biden, if you are Joe Biden himself, if you're Dr. Jill, if you're one of the people that wants the agenda to continue uninhibited, despite Joe Biden's obvious corruption and compromise and criminality that goes hand in hand with everything his son has done. And if it seemed like an indictment was coming down for Hunter Biden in the near future, you would be trying to figure out ways to reduce the damage as much as possible. And taking Joe Biden out of the spotlight while that information is coming out is probably one of the most obvious first steps in that damage control process. And I want to take a second and just be really, really clear about something. I do not hope that Joe Biden dies, okay? And I don't think that most of the people in our community, the people who are doing work similar to what I'm doing, the people that I interact with, I don't think any of us want to see Joe Biden die. And no one should be rooting for that, by the way. And not just because of the questionable morality. We should stay away from that sort of thing. You'll recall the communists went all in with that approach when Donald Trump announced he had COVID in the late summer, if I recall correctly, of 2020. They were on Twitter just praying for Donald Trump's death. It was really deranged. But that's what those people are. That's who they are. We don't have to be like that. I want Joe Biden to live because I want Joe Biden to be seen by the country for who Joe Biden really is while he's alive. I want him to face justice and be punished accordingly for what Joe Biden has done. I want to see Joe Biden face his accusers. I want to see Joe Biden face the American public. And I want the long list of Biden family crimes read out in front of him. I want him to have to answer for all that. So I don't hope Joe Biden dies. I hope he recovers from his little bout with COVID as quickly as possible. And I want all of that more than I want Joe Biden removed from his position as fake president. I want Joe Biden removed from his position as fake president because the entire country comes to the understanding that the election was stolen and Joe Biden didn't win. And Joe Biden has been illegitimate from the very first day. That's what I want. Joe Biden doesn't seem long for this world regardless, but my hope is that he has to answer for his crimes before he leaves it. 
Now, Jordan Sather had a nice catch this morning. He posted a partial transcript from the CNN town hall last year, hosted by Don Lemon. And in Joe Biden's remarks during that town hall, he said, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Now, Joe Biden, according to the White House, has been fully vaccinated and twice boosted. So he actually is behind the vaccine schedule for people his age. I believe they're on the third booster at this point. It would be interesting to find out why Joe Biden is not continuing to receive his booster shots. But Joe Biden is fully vaccinated, we are told. Now, naturally, there's nothing new to any of us in understanding that the vaccines don't work. The vaccines do not prevent infection, transmission, serious illness, or death. I cannot wait for the Joe Biden post where he tells us how thankful he is he was vaccinated or it could have been much worse. And I don't have Twitter, but I imagine that the blue anons, all of the blue check people who imagine they set the course of public conversation over on Twitter and the people who follow them are probably singing the praises of the vaccine today. Imagine if Joe Biden wasn't fully vaccinated and twice boosted, he could actually die from the coronavirus. Now, he might still die from the coronavirus. And again, I'm not hoping for that, but it's a possibility with what we're told, right? Joe Biden is old with significant health problems. It seems he is part of the targeted demographic for who might be killed as a result of testing positive for the very deadly pandemic. So it's possible. And we have to at least think about that possibility and discuss the possibility. It doesn't mean we're hoping for it. But if Joe Biden's coronavirus case turns into a complicated case of the coronavirus, if he gets a severe case, if he's hospitalized or if he dies, then someone else has to assume the role of fake president. And according to the Constitution, if this was a real presidency, the person that would be would be Kamala Harris, someone who could not even collect a single delegate while running in the Democratic primary for president in 2019. Someone who is as unpopular or even more unpopular than the fake president, Joe Biden, someone absolutely no one in the country honestly believes is prepared in any way to be president of the United States of America. But it could be her. We could be looking at a fake president, Kamala Harris, in the very near future. And there will be plenty of machinations beyond that as well, because someone has to replace Kamala as fake vice president and There's a limited number of people who that could be. Hillary Clinton is probably first on that list. And then you get into people like Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama. But you can imagine that whatever route they take, whoever they decide to put into these roles, they won't be doing it because of the constitutional order or what they think is best for the country. They will be trying to set up the situation 
that is going to best get them through the 2022 midterms and then give them a chance to convince the public that they really are winning the 2024 election. They are certainly not on their plan A at this point to imagine that the communists are brilliant and fully in control and winning. And all of this is going exactly as planned at this point to me. That's insane. And it's representative of a bias toward believing that we are all screwed and the country is coming to an end and there's going to be civil war and everything is going to collapse. I don't believe that. And I don't think that the argument that they're fully in control and things are going as planned even makes sense. And while I've crossed paths with plenty of people who believe that I haven't crossed paths with any of them who can actually support that. And I'm not saying they're definitely wrong. Maybe they are, maybe they will prove to be correct. I just don't see any reason to believe that. And none of them seem capable of putting a competent argument forward as to why that's true. Again, if they were fully in control and all they cared about was being fully in control, why wouldn't they have just escalated all of this immediately? Use the military, put us all in camps, gone full authoritarian, full fascist, full Nazi, the whole thing, as other communist regimes have done in the past. And of course, these people would say, oh, well, they might still do that. Yeah, okay, they might still do that. But these are often the same people that are upset that Trump didn't hold on to his power using the military and other means at the end of his first term. They're the sorts of people that think that Q followers were all just fooled in some Operation Trust PSYOP. All of that is so silly, and it's all based on some idea that the people couldn't still rise up. The people still have all their weapons. The people could all still rise up. That's just the worst possible outcome. So there's no reason to promote that. There's no reason to wish for that state of affairs. There's no reason to manifest that into being through our actions and our words and what we're trying to convince other people of. We want a peaceful outcome to all of this. That's why we're enduring the process we're enduring now so that we reach a peaceful outcome so that the country wakes up in the process to all of the things they've been brainwashed and misled about, because that provides us with a better opportunity to maintain the stability of the society when the major truths finally begin to be revealed. So not only do I not think that they're going to take that full authoritarian route, the one that would be really obvious to everyone and that people would perceive and they'd be like, oh, no, now it's too late. The other people were right. What do we do? And everything goes crazy. I don't think that's happening. But I also don't think there's any way they're on their plan A. Their plan requires the public to go along with their plan. That's the problem for them. Again, you got to remember every one of these people, their primary characteristics are narcissism and incompetence. Okay. These are not the best of the best. They're not sending their best. These are the children or grandchildren or great grandchildren 
of people who in the past created fortunes for themselves, created power for their families, were able to acquire political power. All the people running things today are the ne'er-do-well children of people that actually accomplished things. But all of these people, because of their education and the elite circles they run in and the conversations they have, the effect of the brainwashing and disinformation that they have also endured and participated in throughout their lives, they're left completely incompetent and they don't have any ability to notice that. So they still think that they are riding on top of the world. They still think that these stories are going to convince enough people, even as each and every day, the stories convince fewer and fewer people. And so with that in mind, when you think about this situation, it should be clear that they still need narrative paths through the midterms in 2022, through any change of president they might try to pull off, and for the election in 2024. They still have to create scenarios that a large enough portion of the public will actually accept and believe and be willing to repeat to other people in public. Now, I have been suggesting for two years that Joe Biden was put into his position specifically to be a fall guy, to enact the World Economic Forum agenda, the global communist agenda, to the extent possible in the United States while he serves as fake president, and then he would be removed and blamed for all of it. They'll just cast Joe Biden out to sea and let him deal with the Hunter Biden indictment. Let that stuff fall on Joe Biden's head. Watch the media begin to call Joe Biden the corrupt man that he is while trying to protect Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and the rest of the Democrat Communist Party. And most importantly, the global communist agenda, because remember, they don't care who's in there pushing their agenda forward. It's a matter of which advantages they're trying to highlight at a certain point. If Joe Biden implements all the overtly communist parts of the agenda, then they can replace Joe Biden with anyone, scale some of that back, and then talk about how the replacement is a unifying figure in American politics because they've tracked back to the middle. And now they're attracting Republicans who are Trump hesitant, you know, all those never Trumpers that still exist and different groups of donors and power players might back Kamala Harris rather than Nikki Haley, for instance. But from the view of the global communist order, it actually doesn't make any difference at all whether Kamala Harris or Nikki Haley is the president so long as the agenda keeps moving forward. And under those conditions, the agenda would keep moving forward pretty easily. You're now dealing with a person in the position of fake president who is not going to be as divisive as Joe Biden has become. The country has turned away from Joe Biden. He is under 20% with independence. He's under 30% in some polls overall. No one wants Joe Biden to continue being president. 
There is nothing the Uniparty would like more than to have a fake president in there who, according to the media, at least appeals to both sides because then they can come together in bipartisanship and tell the country that Republicans and Democrats are finally working together for the first time. Look at how unifying the new fake president is. They'll do that just the same for Kamala Harris or Hillary Clinton as they will for Nikki Haley or Mitt Romney or Larry Hogan or any other Republican communist that might challenge Donald Trump in the primary for the 2024 election. So there are a lot of scenarios we can imagine, but for now, we should assume that Joe Biden is going to make a full recovery from covid and keep being fake president. He just released a statement within the last few minutes saying that he's feeling fine. He's going to keep working. And this is a a video recorded statement of Joe Biden saying these things. And he says that everything's going to be just fine. He appreciates the concern, but keep the faith. But the potential that Joe Biden could be removed and replaced is interesting right now because we're seeing that happen in locations all over the world. We talked about Sri Lanka last week or maybe the end of the week before, but they have replaced the deposed president with a new president. That new president is a World Economic Forum partner. He's featured on the World Economic Forum website. We had Boris Johnson stepping down as leader of the conservative party in the UK. He has not stepped down as prime minister, though, because the leader of the majority party is usually traditionally the prime minister. It is possible that he will be replaced. The two possibilities for his replacement right now are both World Economic Forum, young global leaders. So that's not exactly reassuring. And we have Mario Draghi stepping down in Italy. It's going to be interesting to see what the possible replacement there is. The takeaway is that the win isn't completed just by getting one World Economic Forum aligned leader out of office. That's not the win. The win is replacing the World Economic Forum leader with a sovereign nationalist leader who is supported by the people and is going to look out for the best interests of the people. And so far, at least in the situations I just mentioned, that's not what we're seeing at this point. If Joe Biden was replaced, they're going to replace him with someone that they think provides an advantage over Joe Biden. And it's likely that they will see that replacement as a win for their agenda. Now, I'm not being pessimistic by saying that. I'm not saying it will ultimately be a win for them. I'm just saying that there is a range of potential replacements for Joe Biden that would provide advantages over the situation as it currently stands. Again, the country is turning away from Joe Biden in a way that the country has never turned away from a president. And that should tell you something about how legitimate people believe Joe Biden is in that role. As well over half the country at this point believes that cheating was at least partially responsible for the result in 2020. So as always, let's try to fully understand the situation, consider the possibilities that might be coming down the road, 
And beyond that, just wait and see. But hey, get well, Joe. We have so much more in store for you. And we want you there. We want you healthy for all of it. Speaking of COVID, this is from the Daily Mail this week, two days ago. That would be Tuesday. The astonishing data that may prove masks don't work as COVID cases in Singapore and New Zealand overtake Australia despite super strict mandates. They don't matter. New data shows COVID cases in Singapore and New Zealand have overtaken Australia in the latest Omicron wave, despite ultra strict mask mandates. Masks are worn everywhere in the densely populated Asian city, while New Zealanders are forced to wear them in all outdoor public places, such as shopping centers and libraries. But both now have higher case numbers per million than Australia, where compulsory mask rules have been abandoned in most indoor settings. These figures appear to smash the push now in Australia for a return to mask mandates, which are currently compulsory only on public transport and in aged care and healthcare facilities. Since Australian mandates began to ease last October, per capita case numbers in Singapore exceeded, matched, or lagged behind Australia before rising ahead again. In New Zealand, case numbers were six weeks behind Australia's Omicron wave in January, but since February, they have matched or exceeded Australia. Death rates in New Zealand also overtook Australia per capita at the start of March, despite the Kiwis being on the highest code red mask mandate restrictions and have stayed higher ever since. In Singapore, death rates dropped below Australia in April after racing ahead between October and Christmas, but are now surging wildly and are set to overtake Australia once more. The Singapore findings were shared on Twitter by Australian National University infectious diseases professor Peter Collignan as debate rages on the need for masks. The post was originally made by a Singapore resident who added, Singapore has never dropped its mask mandates. Masks are required indoors at all times. Australians aren't wearing masks much at all. Let's compare the data. And I believe that last quote was from the infectious diseases professor, although this is the Daily Mail, and they don't say that. Next to a graph of the statistics, he added, it doesn't matter. And that's right. Masks don't matter. If masks work, why don't they? If masks work, how come none of the numbers anywhere in the world reflect the effectiveness of mask policies? Masks don't work. Masks can't work. It's physically impossible for masks to stop the spread of an aerosolized virus. And for all intents and purposes, that includes the high filtration N95 masks as well, because no one wears them correctly. People rewear them. They take them off and on. They go and work out in them. So they sweat into them. They get rained on. They don't work. That's not what those masks were designed to do. There's no extra layer of protection provided by masks, period. Now, let's switch subjects completely to a different form of deep state corruption. This is from yesterday in Just the News, John Solomon reporting. Mystery solved. DOJ secretly thwarted release of Russia documents declassified by Trump. In the final hours of the Trump presidency, 
the U.S. Justice Department raised privacy concerns to thwart the release of hundreds of pages of documents that Donald Trump had declassified to expose FBI abuses during the Russia collusion probe. And the agency then defied a subsequent order to release the materials after redactions were made, according to interviews and documents. The previously untold story of how highly anticipated declassified material never became public is contained in a memo obtained by Just the News from the National Archives that was written by then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows just hours before Trump left office on noon of January 20th, 2021. Meadows' memo confirmed prior reporting by Just the News that Trump, on January 19th, 2021, declassified a binder of hundreds of pages of sensitive FBI documents that show how the Bureau used informants and FISA warrants to spy on the Trump campaign and misled both a federal court and Congress about flaws in the evidence they offered to get approval for the investigation. Now, again, as he says, this is confirming prior reporting. This in itself is not new information, but the documents and the fact that they were held back. That's the issue here. It has been known for years that the investigation contained all sorts of falsified information. Most importantly, in this situation, the Steele dossier, which was the basis of for some of these FISA applications that were turned into FISA warrants in the FISA court, which allowed surveillance on people in and around the Trump campaign. And, you know, these FISA warrants allow the surveillance of communications with anyone the subject of the investigation communicates with anyone those people communicate with and then anyone those people communicate with. So that enables them to cast a very wide net. It enables them to surveil all sorts of people associated with the Trump campaign and all of that surveillance against American citizens is premised on the FISA warrant that itself was premised on the totally fake and manufactured Steele dossier. And the Steele dossier was the Opposition research compiled by former MI6 agent Christopher Steele, sponsored by Hillary Clinton's campaign. And it included all of the fantastical Russia collusion rumors and smears like that Donald Trump hired Russian hookers to pee on him. The declassified documents included transcripts of intercepts made by the FBI of Trump aides a declassified copy of the final FISA warrant approved by an intelligence court and the tasking orders and debriefings of two of the main confidential human sources, Christopher Steele and Stefan Halper, the bureau used to investigate whether Trump had colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election. In the end, multiple investigations found there was no such collusion and that the FBI violated rules and misled the FISA court in an effort to keep the probe going. And that's key. They wanted to keep the probe going. And we can see that in many ways, they have kept the probe going this entire time. They have continually tried to figure out ways that they will be able to access internal Trump communications so that they can find out what Donald Trump is doing. That 
if you ask me, is the primary purpose of the January 6th unselect committee. What they are trying to do is get everybody's communications so they can know what Donald Trump's real plan was because they're not MSNBC viewers. I mean, they might also watch MSNBC, but these are the people that actually on some level know what's going on. They don't know what Trump's doing, but they know Trump's doing something. They know Trump just didn't walk out of the White House and hand the country over to an illegitimate president. And they've been trying to solve that problem ever since. And when you think of it that way, it kind of makes the second fake impeachment, the one over the very violent insurrection, take on different meaning. They pretend it's all about Donald Trump never being able to pursue political office again or getting to the bottom of the very violent insurrection. So nothing like that ever happens again. But those are pretty flimsy justifications for the extent to which they've gone with this investigation over the last year plus that it has been ongoing. What they want is to know what the other side knows, and they have failed time and again to get to that point. But we know they kept the probe going even after Donald Trump took office, and that is proven extensively in the Durham filings for the Michael Sussman case. But back to the article. The documents that Trump declassified never saw the light of day, even though they were lawfully declassified by Trump and the DOJ was instructed by the president through Meadows to expeditiously release them after redacting private information as necessary. So Trump ordered the declassification of all of these documents and the release of these documents. And then his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was trying to work through the privacy and redaction issue. I am returning the bulk of the binder of declassified documents to the Department of Justice, including all that appear to have a potential to raise privacy concerns with the instruction that the department must expeditiously conduct a Privacy Act review under the standards that the Department of Justice would normally apply, redact material appropriately, and release the remaining material with redactions applied, Meadows wrote in the memo. Now, to me, and I don't mean to cast aspersions at Mark Meadows, although there is some doubt as to Mark Meadows standing in all of these situations, I don't feel like I come down on one side or the other at this point. So I choose to look at both sides. Now, Donald Trump declassified these documents on January 29th. So that doesn't leave a lot of time before the end of the term for these documents to come out. If Meadows didn't want these documents to come out, you would think that the best way to avoid that happening, whether he got pressured or just didn't want to do it or whatever political wheeling and dealing, corruption, favors, etc. A good way to delay that past Donald Trump leaving office and a new Department of Justice coming in who has no problem sitting on evidence would be to suggest that there are privacy concerns in the documents and that the DOJ needs another shot at providing their redactions. So it's at least possible that Meadows was part of that operation, and we still have not seen those documents. 
Just the News obtained the memo after going to the Trump collection at the National Archives and asking it to look for the binder of documents that Trump had declassified. The archives said it did not possess the documents. The Justice Department did and provided a copy of Meadows' memo. In an interview Tuesday night on Just the News, Not Noise television show, Meadows said he was dismayed that DOJ ignored a lawful instruction from a sitting president and said it was part of a larger dynamic in which the permanent federal bureaucracy repeatedly tried to undercut Trump to protect itself. Well, you know, the swamp is pretty deep, Meadows said. But when we look at this, this particular president was all about draining the swamp, you know, and when he was running, that was more of a campaign slogan. When he got there, he realized that not only was the swamp very deep, but they would fight back. And oftentimes he said, you know, I want to do this and get this out to the American people, not just the classification in terms of issues that affected him or his campaign personally, but issues that affect the American people. What would happen is he would have a directive and then we would see as people were leaving the Oval Office, you know, they were not in compliance in the Oval Office. And the minute they got out, they said, well, we're not going to do that or we're going to find all the reasons not to do it. So I found that very often while I served as chief of staff, but also found that as a member of Congress, that many times we would go in and the president was all in on a transparency issue only to find that many, whether they be at a particular agency or the Pentagon, they started pushing back. And of course, we know all that to be true. The deep state thwarted many of Trump's efforts for transparency, for the American public to fully understand the truth of the situations that are affecting them. And so naturally, Mark Meadows knows that too. Mark Meadows is restating that case here. But if Mark Meadows already knew that they would attempt to thwart this effort towards transparency by the time he wrote this memo to the DOJ and returned the binder to them asking for their redactions, that the documents may not see the light of day anytime soon. And so if he already knew that, then why in the very last hours of Trump's first term as president of the United States of America, would Mark Meadows send these documents back over to the DOJ? Now, again, I'm not sure I'm right about this, and I'm not sure Mark Meadows is a bad guy. I'm neutral on both questions, but it's at least worth considering because this situation is odd regardless. Now, is this part of a more elaborate plan to allow this information to come out at the perfect time? Hey, maybe. Anything's possible. Liz Harrington, Trump's spokeswoman, told Just the News that DOJ's failure to release the memos fit a pattern of political abuse inside an agency that is supposed to be above politics. For four years, they lied, leaked, spied on and smeared President Trump in their attempts to defy the will of the people, she said. This is further proof of the depths they will go to to hide their corruption. It is far past time for transparency of one of the biggest political scandals in American history. And of course, that's all exactly right. The Justice Department did not respond to a request for comment. The FBI declined to comment. Meadows wrote in his 2021 memo that White House lawyers told him that the DOJ's last minute concerns were not legitimate because the executive office of the president was exempt from the Privacy Act. 
in the interview Tuesday night, he said he agreed in the final minutes of the presidency to let DOJ make redactions out of an abundance of caution and expected the DOJ would comply with Trump's order. We wanted to make sure that we didn't harm anyone, he explained, and so we gave them those declassified documents. I want to stress they were declassified documents, and they were to do a final redaction for some of that personal information with the instruction that they were to go ahead and disseminate those. We fully expected that they would do it. Now, again, if Mark Meadows is a good guy and he knows how the DOJ operates and he knows the time constraint and he knows that a real administration is coming in to replace the Trump administration, then it's awfully strange that he felt at that point it was his responsibility to exercise an abundance of caution. And that abundance of caution actually gave the communists the opportunity to make sure that this information never got out to the American public. And that is the situation we find ourselves in to this day, a full year and a half since Joe Biden assumed the role of fake president. You could make the argument that exercising an abundance of caution would have told Mark Meadows to immediately release all of those documents to the public so the public could know how corrupt the FBI and the DOJ actually are, and so that they could further understand the whole Russiagate thing and the fact that Hillary Clinton, with the knowledge of Barack Obama and Joe Biden and the complicity of federal law enforcement and our intel agencies, helped to first undermine a presidential campaign and then stage a soft coup against a duly elected president of the United States of America. That is what the abundance of caution argument looks like to me. So either Mark Meadows is a bad guy or there's something else going on here. Well, either way, there's something else going on here. But I can't just take Mark Meadows at his word while knowing that important factors of this situation are unaccounted for in his explanation. Former Pentagon chief of staff Cash Patel who worked as the chief investigative counsel for the House Intelligence Committee when it unraveled the false Russia narrative under then-Representative Devin Nunes, said Tuesday the DOJ's defiance of a lawful presidential order only compounded the FBI's and the department's failings during the original probe by preventing the American public from having transparency. It is illegal to hide documents from publication through the FOIA process if their sole purpose is to cover up an embarrassment or unlawful activity, and that's what's going on right now, Patel told the John Solomon Reports podcast, criticizing current and former federal officials for not speaking out against the DOJ's defiance. It's shocking, but not surprising since it has to do with President Trump, Patel added. So their hypocrisy is on display. The DOJ and FBI, he said, simply attempted to run out the clock as the administration's final hours wound down. Patel said the next steps to force the disclosure of the documents is a FOIA lawsuit and possible subpoenas from Congress if Republicans regain control in the November elections. Just the News is exploring such litigation. Tom Fitton, 
the president of the watchdog group Judicial Watch, said the documents in the binder are likely to be responsive to current lawsuits his group has pending at the Justice Department and FBI for Russia probe documents and the 2021 memo from Meadows may make it easier to persuade a court to take action. He said he believes DOJ is, quote, still trying to protect their own in terms of the corruption involving the targeting of Trump, end quote, during the Russia probe. Notably, Fitton's group was involved in litigation that resulted in a court ruling years ago that the White House was exempt from the requirements of the Privacy Act. And he said the DOJ's last minute effort to raise the issue to stop the release of the declassified documents smacked of bad faith. DOJ did the runarounds to try to protect themselves from being exposed because the documents, to be clear, relate to the improper targeting of Trump and his associates that we know is based on politics and animus as opposed to national security or anything substantive. Fitton told Just the News. And in this case, these were documents that were made available pursuant to the president's lawful authority. And in the end, the FBI came up with a lie, which is that the Privacy Act was implicated in the release of these documents by the White House. And that wasn't the case. Former Trump advisor David Bossy, the head of the Citizens United Watchdog Group, said the episode is a pointed reminder that the permanent bureaucracy in Washington wields so much power it can thwart the actions of a duly elected president. This is what President Trump ran against, the deep state, Bossy said. These are the deep state actors that the American people don't understand really what it's about, but it's the people who are in the permanent class in Washington, D.C. They just don't do what they're told. They don't do what they are ordered to do. And so when President Trump says to a bunch of bureaucrats to go do something, they sit on their hands and especially at the last minute. This was a conspiracy against the president within our own government. Meadows said if the documents are finally released, they will provide compelling evidence that congressional Democrats and FBI leaders who assured the public there was a Russia Trump conspiracy actually knew what they were saying was untrue. We found that not only were some of the allegations made by some of the Democrats false, but they were kind of guilty of what they were accusing Donald Trump of, he said. So the question to me is. Was Meadows providing this opportunity to the DOJ so that these documents would never come out? Is he part of that corruption? I'm not saying he is. It's a question worth asking. If he's not, then the timing of this and the machinations suggest that perhaps this is what they wanted to occur. They knew that the incoming DOJ, despite being ordered under legal presidential authority to release the documents would still keep the documents under wraps, which exposes them to more liability than they initially had. And this may quickly become a case of corruption within Merrick Garland's Justice Department and the rest of the deep state that might touch this issue. And in that instance, it's entirely possible that Meadows was merely helping Donald Trump execute another chess move in the long game. It's possible. For now, I would see this as a step toward these documents coming out. This process has now begun. And when those documents come out, that's going to be a 
very bad day for the global communists and for the American deep state. And now, finally, we've been talking a bunch this week about how the public has lost faith in the media and the media is beginning to realize this. We talked yesterday about how certain media figures are saying the media hasn't actually been nice enough to Joe Biden. That's the root of all our problems. Some of them are trying to convince us that we actually do still trust the media, despite the fact that we say we don't and we genuinely don't. And then we had Katie Turr doing some some self-assessment and some reflection about whether or not they've all been doing their jobs the wrong way for years. And of course they have. So in keeping with that theme, we have an incredible op-ed from today in the New York Times written by Brett Stevens, who is one of the quote unquote conservatives on the New York Times editorial staff. This is how they keep their reporting objective in their opinion section, objective and balanced. They have conservatives like Brett Stevens and Maureen Dowd who exist as fake conservatives to convince ultra liberal elites that their views are entirely mainstream and even conservatives agree with them. So Brett Stevens headline today is I was wrong about Trump voters. How very provocative. The worst line I ever wrote as a pundit. Yes, I know it's a crowded field was the first line I ever wrote about the man who would become the 45th president. If by now you don't find Donald Trump appalling, you're appalling. Very mature. This opening salvo from August 2015 was the first in what would become dozens of columns denouncing Trump as a unique threat to American life, democratic ideals, and the world itself. I regret almost nothing of what I said about the man and his close minions, but the broad swipe at his voters caricatured them and blinkered me. So apparently he has understood that it was wrong to portray all of Donald Trump's supporters as fat, stupid, racist misogynists who were longing for some white supremacist version of The Handmaid's Tale. And it also blinded him to the reality. What an admission. It also probably did more to help than hinder Trump's candidacy. Telling voters they are moral ignoramuses is a bad way of getting them to change their minds. Well, you see, Brett, I would actually disagree with you there. That is an important part of the equation. If it's actually true, you just didn't bother finding out whether or not the thing you were saying was true before you said it. There's nothing wrong with painting actual moral ignoramuses as moral ignoramuses. For instance, if you are supporting the forced masking of children while knowing that masks don't work so that you can double down on all your prior false narratives, you are a moral ignoramus who is harming children. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And there's nothing wrong with telling those people that if their minds were going to be changed by rational argument, they would have been changed well before now. What were they seeing that I wasn't? That ought to have been the first question to ask myself. 
When I looked at Trump, I saw a bigoted blowhard making one ignorant argument after another. What Trump's supporters saw was a candidate whose entire being was a proudly raised middle finger at a self-satisfied elite that had produced a failing status quo. Now that is definitely true. He's got that right. I was blind to this. Though I had spent the years of Barack Obama's presidency denouncing his policies, my objections were more abstract than personal. I belonged to a social class that my friend Peggy Noonan called the protected. My family lived in a safe and pleasant neighborhood. Our kids went to an excellent public school. I was well paid, fully insured, insulated against life's harsh edges. Trump's appeal, according to Noonan, was largely to people she called the unprotected. Their neighborhoods weren't so safe and pleasant. Their schools weren't so excellent. Their livelihoods weren't so secure. Their experience of America was often one of cultural and economic decline, sometimes felt in the most personal of ways. It was an experience compounded by the insult of being treated as losers and racists, clinging in Obama's notorious 2008 phrase to guns or religion or antipathy toward people who aren't like them. No wonder they were angry. Anger can take dumb or dangerous turns. And with Trump, they often took both. But that didn't mean the anger was unfounded or illegitimate or that it was aimed at the wrong target. Well, he's saying all the right things now. Trump voters had a powerful case to make that they had been thrice betrayed by the nation's elites. First, after 9-11, when they had borne much of the brunt of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, only to see Washington fumble and then abandon the efforts. Second, after the financial crisis of 2008, when so many were being laid off, even as the financial class was being bailed out. Third, in the post-crisis recovery, in which years of ultra-low interest rates were a bonanza for those with investable assets and brutal for those without. Oh, and then came the great American cultural revolution of the 2010s, in which traditional practices and beliefs regarding same-sex marriage, sex-segregated bathrooms, personal pronouns, meritocratic ideals, race-blind rules, reverence for patriotic symbols, the rules of romance, the presumption of innocence, and the distinction between equality of opportunity and outcome became more and more not just passe, but taboo. And while Stevens attempts to separate himself from that, it should be clear that his brand of elitism was what enabled all of that. It's one thing for social mores to evolve over time, aided by respect for differences of opinion. It's another for them to be abruptly imposed by one side on another with little democratic input, but a great deal of moral bullying again exactly right. This was the climate in which Trump's campaign flourished. I could have thought a little harder about the fact that in my dripping condescension toward his supporters, I was also confirming their suspicions about people like me, people who talked a good game about the virtues of empathy, but practice it only selectively people unscathed by the country's problems, yet unembarrassed to propound solutions. I also could have given Trump voters more credit for nuance, 
For every in-your-face MAGA warrior, there were plenty of ambivalent Trump supporters, doubtful of his ability and dismayed by his manner, who were willing to take their chances on him because he had the nerve to defy deeply flawed conventional pieties. Nor were they impressed by Trump critics who had their own penchant for hypocrisy and outright slander. To this day, precious few anti-Trumpers have been honest with themselves about the elaborate hoax, there's just no other word for it, that was the Steele dossier and all the bogus allegations credulously parroted in the mainstream media that flowed from it. And it's worth noting he couldn't quite get himself all the way to saying that Russian collusion was the hoax, not just the Steele dossier, the entire thing, the Mueller investigation that followed from it and all the DOJ corruption that enabled it, as we just discussed. And it's way too big an ask to consider that Brett Stevens might admit that the Ukraine impeachment was a hoax as well. And that when you add all of that stuff up throughout Trump's term, it's pretty obvious that there was a soft coup being enacted throughout his entire presidency to undermine an American president duly elected and pose grave national security risks to the country in the process. They always forget about that part. A final question for myself. Would I be wrong to lambaste Trump's current supporters, the ones who want him back in the White House, despite his refusal to accept his electoral defeat and the historic outrage of January 6th? And now you can see where Brett Stevens inevitably would fall apart and resort to the same elitist sensibilities that have led him to completely wrong conclusions this entire time. Morally speaking, no. You got that? Morally speaking, Brett Stevens would not be wrong to continue deriding Trump's current supporters because he refuses to accept the stolen election, and because of the historic outrage over January 6th, the very violent insurrection about which the mainstream media and people like Brett Stevens have done nothing but lie about. It's one thing to take a gamble on a candidate who promises a break with business as usual. It's another thing to do that with an ex-president with a record of trying to break the republic itself. Brett Stevens, moron, back on the case. The four years of propelling the country to some of its greatest successes in history and the total lack of pointless foreign interventions was not good enough, you see. He didn't do a good enough job as president, particularly compared to the situation we find ourselves in now. That wouldn't be a reason to want Trump back in office. No. Everyone is a moral ignoramus unless they accept the media's completely false narratives about the election and January 6th. Those are the only issues that matter now. Remember? Oh, and then there's the other ones. If we don't vote for Republicans, the world is going to end. The earth is going to be attacked by the sun and finally killed. Women are no longer going to have abortions. They're going to outlaw interracial marriage. Clarence Thomas, the guy that wrote the decision they're all upset about, is in an interracial marriage.
But you got to vote for Democrats again or else everything is going to turn terrible. And let's just cap this off quickly. But I would also approach these voters in a much different spirit than I did the last time. A drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall, noted Abraham Lincoln early in his political career. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Words to live by, particularly for those of us in the business of persuasion. So Brett Stevens imagines himself to be in the business of persuasion, not in the business of propagandizing the American Republic wittingly or unwittingly. He's in the business of persuasion. It is now his approach to make serious arguments to the people on the other side after properly understanding what people on the other side really think, except when it comes to subjects that we're just not prepared to have a discussion about right now, like the fact that the election was stolen and that January 6th is not in any way the way the media has painted it. So before this article, Brett Stevens hated Trump supporters and has expressed his hatred for Trump supporters countless times. He accepts fully the central narrative. Now, his personal take on the central narrative might differ from some of the more communist members of New York Times editorial staff, but he still accepts the underlying truth of the totality of the central narrative. Same place for COVID that he is for the election that he is for January 6th that he is for everything else. He admitted earlier that his disagreements with Barack Obama were abstract. They're just minor policy details. See, Barack Obama, he's a little too liberal. And you see, I'm a very real conservative. So I'm going to say big government every now and then. And I'm going to quote people from history so that I can prove to everyone how smart I am and what a great perspective I have on the relevant history in any given situation. See, that's what makes me a conservative. And I said this on Truth Social the other night. Establishment liberals like to feel like they're heroes while destroying the country. And establishment conservatives like to feel like they're good at history while destroying the country. That's Brett Stevens. His problems with Obama are only abstract. He still realizes that Barack Obama is the perfect human and came to all of us to save the country at the right time. But, you know, he didn't probably read enough Milton Friedman. That's the problem. So Brett Stevens went from hating 2016 Trump supporters and accepting the totality of the central narrative to now his new enlightened position where he sort of understands 2016 Trump supporters, still accepts the totality of the central narrative and is now making the argument for why it's okay to hate current Trump supporters. And so being the just right of center centrist, he imagines himself to be, he is threaded the needle and found a perfect niche position where he is able to make liberals a little mad because they still hate the 2016 Trump supporters, but also make them happy and feel smart and self-righteous so that they too can go out and say, well, I understand why people would have voted for Trump in 2016, but right now, right now, 
after claiming that the election was stolen and staging the very violent insurrection? Well, all those people are moral ignoramuses, just like they were in 2016. But now we're saying it for a more justifiable, more current, trendy reason. So once again, it's okay. So Brett Stevens has given himself the moral excuse. He has admitted his wrong. He has promised to repent, but he is still preserving the central narrative. And beyond preserving the central narrative, he is still preserving the justification for the hate movement that he still does not realize he is part of, despite admitting that he already hated Trump supporters without justification. And of course, that's where he is. That's where many centrists are. They are still a part of the hate movement. They believe that Trump and his supporters are always wrong because they are not smart enough to be right. They don't have the fancy college degrees, even though the numbers are probably equal on both sides, roughly. And none of them are up on current events. They just all have these old grievances about race and religion and what women do with their bodies. And that's what really drives them. It's not information. It's not that they have different information. And if they do have different information, it's probably just disinformation and conspiracy theory. And they use that disinformation and conspiracy theory to cover up what their real motivations are, all those old grievances. And they don't think that that process, that thought process could ever actually apply to them. It's not them with the disinformation. It's not them with the conspiracy theories. No matter how many times you prove them wrong about really critical issues, like, as he mentioned, Russian collusion, none of that matters. The conspiracy theory remains. The disinformation remains. These people don't know anything about these issues. They have no idea what people on the other side think or why they think it. And they always revert to the same old grievances. These people are bad because they believe wrong things. They believe wrong things because they're bad. Anything they believe, therefore, must be wrong because the bad people believe it. And the bad people are stupid. The bad people can't differentiate right from wrong. They can't discern morality. They can't extract meaning from what they know. They're wrong because they're bad and they're bad because they're wrong. On the other hand, we're right because we're good and we're good because we're right. So the only solution here is to try to marginalize and diminish or maybe remove entirely all of these people from their current role in society. And what takes all of this from simply individuals and their own bigotry and hatred for people who aren't like them and actually moves it into a legitimate hate movement? Well, it's the fact that elite culture tells them they are morally justified in feeling self-righteous about participating in the bigotry and hatred in the first place. And I suppose maybe we should just be happy that our cultural elites are so incompetent and so narcissistic that in their attempts to disavow the hate movement they are part of, they unwittingly justify the hate movement once again.
Because what are they going to do? Realize that everything they've based their lives on is wrong and accept that they're the bad guy? Not going to happen. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!